1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Let's pray for God's blessing upon His Word before we hear it read and preached. Father, we do come before You this morning. We pray that You would open our ears that You would open our minds, that You would open our hearts to the truth of Your Word. But we pray that they would not just remain open, but that they would be open, that they might close upon it. That as the Word comes into our ears, our ears seize upon it. That our minds grip it. That our hearts embrace it. And we would be shaped and formed and conformed to the truth of your word this morning as we each have need. Speak to us in a way that only you can speak. And may we hear it from one who alone has all truth. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. The grass withers. The flower fades. The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul will give a list of various ways that he has suffered for the sake of Christ and he has suffered for the sake of the gospel. And he will include in that list that he has hungered, that he has thirsted, that he has spent sleepless nights, that he has been shipwrecked, that he was imprisoned, that he was beaten with rods, that he was whipped, that he was stoned. And at the very end of this long list that he goes through detailing these things, he ends with what I think he is inferring to us is the greatest pain that he endured in ministry. He says it this way, he calls it the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. There's a lot of hard things in ministry as there are in any vocation. We live in a fallen world. There are a lot of pains that come with that. 
As I reflect, though, upon the greatest cost that is paid in ministry, it's this, it's the anxiety that I have for the people that I serve. That's the greatest cost. And the greatest pain in ministry I've found over the years that I've been in the pastorate, 20 or so years, it's not been the gossip about you or the slander or the conflict or even the betrayal. It's rather watching someone that you have prayed for more than they can possibly know. You've sought to feed to the best of your abilities by preaching. That you've sought to serve in countless ways that they haven't seen. Someone you've loved. And they depart from the faith. That's the great pain. That's the searing pain. It's a pain that Paul knew, and knew intimately and knew well when he speaks about this. This is not an academic exercise for him. This is not a hypothetical. When he writes to Timothy, he writes to a brother who has experienced this there in the church of Ephesus, as we'll reflect upon a little later in the sermon. This is very real to them. Real pain for those who have departed from the faith. First, I want you to see the warning that he gives at the very beginning. He says, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Where or when did the Spirit expressly say this? We don't exactly know. Is He referencing some Old Testament Scripture? Possibly. But most likely, what He is referencing is that now, by the Spirit, as Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, the Spirit is communicating that there will be those expressly in the last times, in the later times, that depart from the faith. That word that he uses there, it's very strong. It is the word that we get apostatized from. There will be those that apostatize from the faith. And there are two reasons Paul gives this warning here. The first is similar to what we see during Passion Week with our Lord Jesus Christ, what we will celebrate this week. Remember on that Passion Week on Monday, Thursday, the night before His betrayal, on Good Friday, where He is laid out upon the cross, and three days later, where He is raised from the grave. But on that Monday, Thursday, you remember He gathers together with His disciples, and He gathers together with them in that upper room. And in the upper room, He will wash their feet, serving them, and then they will celebrate the Passover, and He will institute the Lord's Supper. And you remember that at that meal, as He has gathered all of the disciples together in the upper room, He will tell them that one of them in their midst is going to betray Him. Why does Jesus do this? Well, it's an act of grace. It's an act of sheer kindness. He didn't have to reveal that one of them would depart, but He does. Why? So that they wouldn't be shocked when one who had intimately been in their ranks departed from the faith and ultimately betrayed Jesus. He doesn't want them devastated. 
And so the Spirit here is doing the same thing through the Apostle Paul. He is giving this warning. He's echoing it for the same reason. In the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Most of us who have existed in the church for some time, you've experienced this. Someone that you have loved. Someone you've respected. Someone that you've served. Maybe somebody that has served you, that has informed your life, your Christian life, maybe even shared the gospel with you. And you've seen them depart from the faith. And so, through the Apostle Paul, it's being communicated, we're being warned so we aren't shocked. And so that shock doesn't become a kind of disillusionment with the faith. And we have to maintain walking a fine line here. We never want to become the cynic. We never want to become the skeptic about other people's commitment to Christ. So we are to be surprised when someone departs from the faith. But this warning is here so we aren't shocked and devastated by somebody departing from the faith. Was with the high school students this week. Uh, was with them to do a Q and A. Uh, some have called it Daniel in the Lion's Den. Uh, maybe uh, more appropriately, some have called it Stump the Chump. Uh, and uh, wonderful questions. Just wonderful hearts and minds in our high school students. Your parents are doing a lot better job than many of you think you are doing, uh, and Dave Hinckley is doing a fabulous job, uh, but wonderful questions. And one question that was asked, it's a question that is always asked in these Q&As that I do with different groups and have done over the years, it's always asked. As pastor, can someone lose their salvation? It's on the front of people's minds and often laid on their hearts. Is that what Paul is addressing here? Is he saying that some have lost their salvation? And the answer is no. He says they depart from, quote, the faith. And that they confess belief in the faith, meaning the objective faith, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. He's just detailed that at the very end of chapter 3. Remember, he went through this mystery of godliness. And he recites this old creed from the church where he walks through the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. He's just quoted that. And so he's saying that there are those who believed that object of faith or claimed that object of faith, but they never had subjective faith. They never actually believed in their hearts this truth. They recognized it. They may have given it lip service. But it wasn't here. Some who claim to be Christians will depart the faith. They never actually believed and trusted in Christ for their salvation. As John will say in 1 John 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But for those who have truly believed the object of faith, 
who have truly believed it subjectively. That is, in their hearts, they have trusted and believed in Christ for their salvation. They have confessed Him as Lord and Savior and bowed their knee to Him. For them, it's an impossibility to depart from the faith. Why? Because it's a gift that has been given. You did not secure it. You did not claim it. You did not work your way to it. It was a gift that was given. Jesus says in John 10, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You have been given a gift. You can't return that gift. And there is nothing and there is no one that is stronger than the Father and the Son. Not the demonic forces. Not Satan, not hell, not death, not even your sin is able to pluck you out of the hand of the Father. None is greater than the Father. Die and the Father are one, Jesus says. No one can snatch my own out of my hands. Let me be crystal clear, categorically clear. If you are in Christ, if you have received the gift of faith, if you are united to Christ by saving faith, you can never be lost. Never. Does that mean that we are to rest on our laurels? No. There's another reason the Spirit gave this warning through the Apostle Paul. It is, as we said first, so that we don't become disillusioned by those that depart from the faith, but second, so that we might be sure that we are indeed in the faith and we persevere in the faith. The greatest sign of actually having believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, is that you persevere until the very end. That's the greatest sign. Paul will say you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There is to be striving. There is to be effort. There is to be sweating. But Jason, Paul's speaking about the later times. Some will depart the faith in later times. Yes. You're living in those times. Paul makes it clear in the verb tenses that he uses here. He speaks about the later times and then he quickly moves into the present tense with his verbs. He saw himself as living in the later times. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven had come into this world with the advent of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, John the Baptist yelled. And as that kingdom of heaven came into the world, the end times came into this world. The kingdom is here, but not yet. 
We live in the later times. The very next thing is when the Lord Jesus returns upon the clouds with the angels and the archangels, and as He returns in His second advent into this world, all things will be consummated. Everything will be brought to its proper conclusion when He returns. We live in the later times. And so we're being warned. Be on guard. You're to keep fighting. You're to keep holding on to this faith. You're to keep persevering until the very end. Because the threat to our faith is great. It often begins the way that Paul lays out here for those that depart from the faith. I want to look at it just as he lays it out here so that we can heed this warning. What is often the course of departing the faith? Well, the first step is beginning to distance ourselves from the truth. We begin to distance ourselves from the truth. He says all of this, again, on the heels of communicating the core of the Christian faith, the gospel, that the Son of God came into this world and that He lived a righteous life, that He died an atoning death, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, that He ascended to heaven. And He says that those who depart, they begin devoting themselves to other teachings. That is, they distance themselves from this truth. Now often that's subtle, it often is just kind of one degree off, something becomes of equal importance to the gospel, and then eventually becomes more important than the gospel. Often it's something new. Listen, if someone has a new idea in the church, you're to run from it. If someone is passionate about something that the church has not historically been passionate about, you better run from it. Or to keep close to the truth. Any light that is created between you and your love for the gospel is to be run from. Don't let there be any light between you and the gospel. I saw a quote from Herman Bovink, a theologian of the 20th century this week, who was critiquing his own generation in his own day, and he said this, and it's very applicable to today. He said, while the 19th century Christian pietists forgot the world for themselves, we run the danger of losing ourselves in the world. Nowadays, we are out to convert the whole world, to conquer all areas of life for Christ. But we often neglect to ask whether we ourselves are truly converted and whether we belong to Christ in life and in death. For this is indeed what it boils down to. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world even for Christian principles if he loses his own soul? 
He's saying, watch out for your soul. That you let a degree of light between you and the gospel. They distance themselves from the truth. And that leads to Paul saying they were devoting themselves to false teaching. It's almost always the form it takes. People being led astray, distancing themselves from the truth, and they become devoted to another teaching. They become passionate about some particular teaching, and they begin to deny what the church has confessed. They don't start out that way. That's the path they head down. Distance from truth and then devotion to false teaching. Paul has no problem saying that these false teachings are of the demonic realm. In one verse, he notes the work of the Spirit. In the very next, he's talking about demonic spirits. He's saying, look, these false teachings that come into the church and into the lives of those who confess to be Christians, these are demonic doctrines. And demonic doctrines always have a medium into the church. It's through people, through false teachers. There's some, especially in our day and age, I think, especially in Western culture, especially maybe even in our Presbyterian Reform circles especially. I don't understand that you and I, we are engaged in a cosmic conflict. There's true spiritual warfare that is occurring. There's a battle, a battle for your mind, for your heart, that is being waged. And you're in the midst of it whether you want to recognize it or not. It's real. It's very real. Now believe me, I understand that there are people that overestimate this and they believe that every barrier in their life and every single challenge that they go through is the devil in some way. And they will say, ah, oh, didn't mean to do that. It was the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make you do it. I at least know for one that I'm not important enough for the devil to come tempting me. He's a limited being. He's not omnipresent like God. He can only be in one place at one time. Now Martin Luther may have had reason to say that he was fighting the devil when he was wrestling with the devil. I'm not that important. I hazard to guess most, if not all of you in this room, are not that important. But that doesn't mean that there isn't spiritual warfare going on around you. It doesn't mean that there aren't demonic forces that are at work in our midst. It sounds silly to modern people on this side of the Enlightenment. We don't like to talk about this or think about this. We kind of roll our eyes when people start to talk about demons and angels and spiritual warfare occurring even in this room right now. But the fact that you and I dismiss it, that's evidence of more demonic influence than you and I want to admit. That's demonic. There's battle 
that is being waged. And it's going on in this room right now. You think the word goes out like this morning where it's being read and being preached and you don't think there's battle going on in this room? There are demons. Not a doubt in my mind, there are demons that are fighting for your mind and your heart right now. They want you to be distracted. I don't like that preacher. I don't like his personality. I don't like the person across the room. I don't like that that person over there doesn't seem to understand these things. And all the while distracted. And there are angels that are working. I want to see you take that word and apply it to your heart. They're fighting for your soul and fighting for your mind. It's very real. This untruth, this slightly adjusted truth that the Ephesians have grabbed a hold of, Paul says, demonic, because it's untrue. They distance themselves from the truth and then they devote themselves to this untruth. And how does this happen? How do we go from distancing ourselves from truth, which is so subtle, to devoting ourselves to demonic lies and eventually then departing the faith? How does that occur? Well, Paul's already spoken about it. He spoke about it back in chapter 1, verse 19. He speaks about two men that were in that church in Ephesus. Hymenaeus is one of them, and uh, the other being Alexander. And he says that they rejected their conscience and thus made a shipwreck of their faith. Here are two people that Timothy knew very well. People that he had loved, that he had served, that he had ministered to, that he had prayed for, no doubt, and that the Ephesian church knew well. And Paul says that they denied their conscience and made a shipwreck of their faith. Paul says about these false teachers, that is true of them, that quote, whose consciences are seared. They're sowing untruth among God's people, And they're doing that because they have seared consciences. Now that can happen from the pulpit, but that can happen in the pew. And that can happen in the fellowship hall. And that can happen in your small groups. That there is false teaching. Now the people may not think that it is false teaching. They may be very sincere about it. They may not believe it to be untrue. They don't know it to be untrue because their conscience has been seared. Does that mean to have a seared conscience? There's two possibilities here in the Greek. Some think that it's seared in the idea that how we would take a branding iron and how we might take a domesticated animal and we would sear that brand into that domesticated animal. And what does that searing do? It brands the animal and says, that animal belongs to me. I claim it. And so it could be that what Paul is saying is that their consciences are seared and that demons have a claim to it. It's theirs. They own it. I think more likely what Paul is referencing here is that 
the conscience has been cauterized. Cauterized. It's a word in the Greek here that we get cauterized from. And it has been so seared to truth that it has become desensitized to it. It has become deadened to truth. It has become insensitive to sin. Conscience is an interesting thing in the Bible. It can be spoken of both positively, it can be spoken of negatively. It can be spoken of as good, it can be spoken of as clean. It also is spoken of as being desensitized, deadened, weak, wounded, defiled, emboldened to sin, evil, Guilty, and then here in First Timothy, seared. The New Testament will speak about strong consciences, and it will speak about weak consciences. Now, don't make the mistake. I think we often think about that weak conscience as being the seared conscience. That is not true. These are not synonyms for one another. The weak conscience is not a seared conscience. A weak conscience is an oversensitive conscience. A conscience that is overreactive to issues that aren't really sins. In fact, it's interesting that it's usually the person of weak conscience that most often accuses those of strong consciences because they are so easily offended by things. It is weak because it's easily offended. And guilt will pile up upon the person with a weak conscience. Guilt that shouldn't be there. But that's not a seared conscience. A seared conscience is one that is no longer responsive. It's, it's been deadened. How? Well, think of it like the person, we've all seen those videos before, of the person that is walking on hot coals, fire coals, and how is it that they can walk across those coals with bare feet? Well, what they have done over time is that they have walked on some coals and they've extended how far they walk on the coals and how long they are in the coals and eventually they get to a place where they no longer have the sensation that it's hot. They've been desensitized to it. They no longer feel it. This is the danger of playing with sin. This is the danger of playing with false teaching. Is that you become desensitized to it. That you no longer respond as quickly in faith and repentance. Your conscience, my friends, is your friend. It's your friend. You're to listen to it. But it's not enough that we simply say, well, my conscience says this, and so I must do it. You can't just make that claim. Because there are times that your conscience can be wrongly informed. You want a well-informed conscience. Often it's wrongly informed. John MacArthur said, he said, the wise Christian wants to master biblical truth so that the conscience is completely informed and judges right because it is responding to God's 
Word. You and I need to feast upon the Scriptures. We need to bathe in the Scriptures. We need to find ourselves swimming in the Scriptures over and over. So it's in our mind. It's informing our hearts. And that is informing our conscience so we know what is right and we know what is wrong. We know what is true and we know what is a lie. You have to have a biblically informed conscience. MacArthur gives a wonderful illustration of the conscience as a skylight. He says it's a skylight rather than a light bulb. It's like a skylight that lets light into the soul. But you'll notice about a skylight, a skylight never produces light. And so its effectiveness is determined by the amount of pure light we expose it to and by how clean we keep it. Hymenaeus and Alexander, they didn't keep their skylight clean. When their conscience was pricked, they didn't respond quickly in repentance and faith. And then it was pricked again, and then it was pricked again, and then it was pricked again. And eventually it becomes unclean and cloudy, and the light of truth is not shining through. And they distanced themselves from the gospel. And then they devote themselves to false teaching. And then they get to the place where they have a deadened conscience. And they depart from the faith. Distance, devotion, deadened, departed. I want to close with just thinking about What's happening here in Ephesus and the false teaching that is happening? What people were devoting themselves to? Because I think it's really helpful for us, especially in this day. Because it's not what you would think. Often what we think is false teaching and what we need to be on guard against are things that indulge our carnal appetites or things that are aimed very much at Christ Jesus just blatantly. We think that's the great threat, the great false teaching. But that wasn't the case in Ephesus and that's often not the case for us. For them, it was a case of super-spirituality. They had bought into some kind of asceticism. They were teaching a form of spirituality that was more spiritual than the Bible itself. They were teaching that marriage was wrong and that certain foods, most likely meat, were wrong. It was a too restrictive spirituality. Now listen, you are fine. If as a Christian you want to be a vegetarian... You can do that. You can even be a vegan Christian if you want to. I'm not sure why you want to, but I understand it. Uh, you can be single. Paul even makes it clear that it is good to be single for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of the church so that you can be single-mindedly focused upon Christ. But when you make a categorical call for others to do the same, 
Or when you think that you are at a higher level of spirituality because of something you do or something you are or something you believe beyond the gospel. And Paul is saying that is a departing from the faith. Paul makes it clear that sex and food are good gifts given by God. What He created, all things, He declared them good. And not everything that exists is good. Much of the world and its activities have been corrupted by the fall, but what God created is good, Paul is stating. And so here you have people that have just distanced themselves a little bit from the gospel because they want some kind of super spirituality that exceeds belief in the gospel. And so now they've become passionate. They've, been, they've devoted themselves to this asceticism and they're teaching it to other people. And their conscience has become increasingly over time deadened to the fact that they are teaching false doctrine. And now they're departing from the faith. Paul says, can they not see that they're declaring what God created as good? No, they can't see it because they've seared their conscience. And they're leading others to depart the faith. God has given good things for His people on earth to enjoy. He gave us taste buds for a reason. He gave us sexual organs for a reason. He gave us eyes to take in sunsets and sunrises for a reason. He gave us ears to listen to Bach and Mozart for a reason. God's not quite the prude that so many make Him out to be. He gives good gifts to His children. And He actually wants you to enjoy them. It's an apostolic inference here for us. We are to enjoy what the Lord has given to us. G.K. Chesterton said it well when he said this. He said, you say grace before meals, all right. But I say grace before the play and the opera. And grace before the concert and pantomime. And grace before I open a book. And grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing. And grace before I dip the pin in the ink. Now we can enjoy things too much. We can enjoy good things too much. But that doesn't mean that the good thing itself is bad and you aren't meant to enjoy it. God has given you good things to enjoy. Our faith is a faith rooted in a God who gives good things. Because He is a good God. Especially this week. Oh my, this week. And you and I celebrate the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection of our Savior. Our God is so good that He sends a Son into this world to die for sinners. That we might have goodness forevermore. Why would we ever not want to believe this God is good 
See, this is the lie that goes all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent. That serpent comes to them and is questioning, is God actually good? Isn't He trying to keep things from you? No, this is a very good God. Beyond good. He has given us the gift of salvation, the greatest good there could be, His very own Son, the life, death, burial, resurrection of our Savior. He has given us the greatest good. Why would we go traipsing after other things thinking they are more good? As if He's trying to keep things from us. No, Paul is saying, you keep very close to the gospel. Don't you let a breath of light between you and the gospel. I don't want to have to cry over any of you. Don't you depart from the gospel. Let me just close with this. Just a few applications. Some of you in this room this morning have not believed. You'll say Jesus is the Son of God. Maybe even you say He died for sinners. But you haven't believed. And there's an eternity of difference. That object of faith has to be very real to you. You have to make it your own. You have to own it. You have to receive the gift of faith. He offers it to you this morning. You're hearing it. You but have to believe. There are others of you in this room and you've been playing with the faith. You've been playing with sin. You've been playing with false teaching. You're in dangerous ground. Don't you let there be a breath of light between you and the gospel. Not a breath of light. If you are finding yourself more passionate about something else than the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, it's time to repent. It's time to delight in Him again. Some of you that sit in here each week and you're busy critiquing others. Busy thinking about how you disagree with that or disagree with this or don't like that person or don't like how he speaks or like how he sings. Or... And all the while you're losing it. Just a little distance. For the Christian, two things. One, you keep on fighting. You have to fight. You have to fight. You have to keep a guard out. 
There is spiritual warfare for your soul. You have to keep fighting. You have to love this Word and bathe in this Word and pray over this Word. So you persevere to the end. And if you're His, it's guaranteed He will keep you to the end. The other is this. There's no doubt there is someone in almost everybody's life in this room that at once claimed the faith and now has departed from the faith. You don't give up on them. You don't stop crying out in prayer for them. Because if they are truly Christ, they aren't lost. They're wandering. And they will be found. He will not let any that are in His hand be plucked out. And so you keep hoping. And you keep praying. I don't understand it, but somehow yours and my prayers work in the midst of all this. You keep praying. And you keep hoping. He keeps his own. Keep close to the gospel. And pray for one another that we would keep close to the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we do exalt you this morning. That you are a giver of such good gifts. How could we ever doubt your goodness and seek to make a faith of our own to become passionate and devoted to things other than what you have revealed? And you have given us the gift of your Son. Forgive us for our waywardness. Keep us close to our Savior. Keep us in the palm of your hand. Bring us home, we pray, to glory. It is in the strong name of Christ, the Good Shepherd's name we pray. Amen.